Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. It is the Oz Network coming to you today for another interview episode. We love a good interview, and today's a special one because this is one of our special episodes that we do on two different podcasts. That's right, we do this interview and kill two birds with one stone. Probably shouldn't use that uh, phrase given that this guy did direct a very famously large bird in a movie <laughs> once and might be offensive to some people who are fans of his because of that. Uh, we did this interview for Double Oz 7 mainly and then we thought, we'd, well, this guy is esteemed enough that we'll put him on the Oz Network and uh, talk a little bit more about some of his other stuff. Ken Quapis, director extraordinaire, director behind such films as The Sisterhood of Travelling Pants, He's just not that into you. The Office, Malcolm in the Middle, The Bernie Mac Show. But we're here to talk about him, to him, about his favourite movie of all time. I don't know if it is or not, but I'm just saying it is. Beautician and the Beast, because we did that over on Double Oz 7, and there's a story behind that. My name is Ben, and uh, I'm Timothy Dalton. (laughs) And my name is Colin, old buddy. (laughs) Stuff your intros. Um, <laughs> yes. So a bit brief background for why we are speaking to Ken. Uh, over on 007, a James Bond podcast. Download now where all good and bad podcasts are available because ours falls into the bad category. We <coughs> have been doing a special series where each of the James Bond actors, all six of them, we've been choosing films from their fil- filmography outside of Bond to cover each of their films. So we've gone through Connery, we've gone through George Lazenby, Roger Moore, we're up to Timothy Dalton now. And that movie that we did was The Beautician and the Beast because that movie was one that I remembered as a kid. I enjoyed it. It's got Fran Drescher in it. And over on 007, we somehow made a joke that Fran Drescher should have been a Bond girl and it was hilarious. So we thought, let's combine the two and let's relive this film. I, as I said, loved it as a kid, remembered it, and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I was excited. Colin had never seen it. Colin's not a huge fan of Timothy Dalton as Bond, so it was always going to be intriguing to combine Timothy Dalton with Fran Drescher. (laughs) And we did a recap of it recently and we thought, well, why not? Let's track down some people. Timothy and Fran were busy, so we thought, let's get Ken (laughs) On. And let's be honest, as I say in this interview, we didn't really want Timothy and Fran. We only wanted Ken because he's the guy that made this thing, well, besides the writer. He directed this film, so therefore he helped put it together. Colin, you, I think, were pleasantly surprised how much you enjoyed this movie and uh, pleasantly surprised at the filmography of Ken and all the things that you found interesting to talk to him about outside of Beautician and the Beast. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things, first of all, I'll just say that was kind of scary is that uh, this interview was lined up before we watched this movie, before you rewatched it. So 
even as we're, you were getting ready to do it, I think if it was a week before or whatever, you're like, I- I'm terrified that I'm just going to watch this and be like, wow, that's garbage. <laughs> but yeah, we're interviewing the director. And I was like, yeah, I've never seen this before. And I'm very uh, reluctant to watch it. And it was not us sucking up at all. Like we legitimately really enjoyed this movie. It's, it's uh, not, not, you know, Shakespeare or anything, but it's, it's a great uh, hidden treasure of late nineties uh, romantic comedies, especially to be able to see Timothy Dalton. But I mean, aside from that, just being able to ask Ken about so many of his other projects too, uh, including one, you know, uh, that uh, is a TV show that we've briefly covered on here. At least Rocky and I have briefly covered on here uh, and, <laughs> So many of his movies, TV shows, everything, including one starring a very famous bird, which uh, <laughs> let's just say this man directed Big Bird. So yeah. <laughs> he's he's directed the likes of Ben Affleck, Jennifer Anderson, Timothy Dalton, uh, the girl Steve from Carell. Steve Carell, the young girl from Gilmore Girls. I forget her name. And Big Bird. Which... That's right. Who, where else are you going to find somebody who's directed that many great people? Yes. And Burns. Yes. And Gilmore Girls actors. And I apologize to Gilmore Girls fans. <laughs> we we talk a lot about uh, pants that are traveling. I always thought it was the divine sisterhood of the traveling pants, but that's a different movie, I, isn't it? I got those movies uh, mixed up too. Yeah. That was the divine secrets of the yak yak sisters or something. <laughs> and then there's this <laughs> sister of the traveling pants. It's no how to make an American quilt. Um, That's right. We're still trying to work out how. (laughs) We're creating a month here. We're going to do the Divine Yak Yak Sisters, Sister of the Traveling Pants 1 and 2, and How to Make an American Quilt. (laughs) And and by the end of it, Colin and I will be wearing pants, yakking away whilst quilting, (laughs) uh, which is always our dream. But we digress. Our great interview here with Ken Quappas, Emmy-nominated Ken Quappas, right now. Let's cross to myself, introducing Ken. Massive pleasure to be able to welcome our next guest to whichever show you were listening today, be it Double Oz 7 or the Oz Network. For our Oz Network listeners, this is a standard interview. We're interviewing a, an esteemed director, two time Emmy nominee, best known for films such as He's Just Not That Into You, Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants, A Walk in the Woods, director of such TV shows as The Office, Malcolm in the Middle, The Bernie Mac Show, and has just released a book called Bot- But What I Really Want to Do is Direct Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. For our Oz Net- uh, our Double Oz 7 listeners, I'm getting my shows confused right now, it's a bit of an odd one because people are probably thinking, where's the connection to the James Bond franchise? Well, recently we did a recap of a Timothy Dalton film called The Beautician and the Beast, a film that Colin and I have been talking about for quite some time that we were going to do. We recently did it. We actually thoroughly enjoyed it. We just released the recap, and we thought, well, how about we talk about it a little bit more? We could get Timothy Dalton on. We could get Fran Drescher on. No, who cares about them? We want to get the guy behind the camera who directed these guys, and that guy, of course, is the one, the only, Mr. Ken Quapas. Ken, first of all, welcome. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. Very happy to be here on both shows simultaneously. <laughs> yes, simulcast. It's kind of like some big live uh, drop, I guess. I, I don't know how that works. But, this, uh, this is how we get our listeners to listen to it in stereo, one yeah. on each speaker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kind of goes around there. But uh, I, I would actually be really intrigued to know because I think the, the caveat for us getting you on realistically was Beautician and the Beast, but of course you've got some great other things to talk about as well. But is this something that anybody ever wants to talk to you about, Ken? Like with, with this amazing filmography that you've you've worked on, I can't imagine Beautician and the Beast is one that people want to track you down to talk about often. 
Not not enough. I mean, I, I'm very proud of the film. I really love the film. And I, I will say over the years, I, it, it ha- I've, I've talked of you know, fans of the film who uh, characterize it as a, I, I'm thinking of a, one woman in particular who's told me it's the perfect rainy day movie. It's like the perfect Saturday afternoon. It's raining, you can't do anything. And Mutation and the Beast is the perfect, it's pretty like good comfort food movie, I guess that's what she was trying to say. And, uh, but no, I don't, I don't get asked a lot about it. <laughs> do, do you know what uh, we found really interesting is that, uh, you know, we look at Timothy Dalton's filmography. I mean, he was a very serious, dramatic actor for so long. And he sort of reinvented himself uh, as this comic actor now. You know, he had done Hot Fuzz and Toy Story and everything. And uh, you can't trace back any laughs from Timothy Dalton uh, <laughs> prior to The Beautician and the Beast. So, I mean, what was is it like true? with him? Oh, wait, is that true? Is there no other comedy role? We couldn't that? find anything oh, where he had done a, a, a comedy. Colin, and- Colin lasted him as Bond, but that's for different reasons. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, and, and obviously, and you know more about this than I do, but he was the serious-minded Bond. So, you know, he was definitely the... and. Um, but I think that, you know, I think, first of all, Timothy had a blast working on the film. And, uh, and it wasn't, you know, it was both a comic role, but it was also a romantic role. And, you know, and talk about an uh, oddball, you know, odd couple. I mean, and, and part of the, what I remember, we shot the film in 1996. And what I remember was, uh, you know, usually when you're doing any kind of romantic story, for instance, I directed He's Just Not That Into You with a lot of famous people you don't really get a chance to find out whether these famous people will have good chemistry together you can't say to you know jennifer aniston well i want you to do a a chemistry read with ben affleck to see if you guys work together you have to just take it on faith that they'll work well together and they did in fact and that was absolutely the case with timothy and fran who knew what (laughs) <laughs> what if any chemistry they would have together yeah they come from such different universes of acting and in fact i remember when i'm uh when we offered timothy the role i thought oh, you know i have to do some timothy dalton homework and i went back to the beginning i watched the lion in winter which i believe was his first feature film and uh you know i caught caught up with things i hadn't seen for a while like rocketeer which is a fantastic film and uh but i kept i, I kept thinking well i don't know how this like li- a literal shakespearean is going to work you know opposite fran drescher who at that time she was very popular because of her show the nanny but i certainly remember as i'm sure a lot of you do uh seeing her for the first time in spinal tap one mm. of her you know one of her great roles and um the good news is that you know it was a perfect you know case of opposites attract, or that you know you need the yin to have the yang. I mean, they they definitely weirdly complemented each other. And Timothy, of course, uh, a lot of the story is about how flummoxed he is by Fran's. You know, this is a you know to say a, to use a word Fran might Fran's you know various you know kind of mishigas. And um, but I like the idea that he. Um, also, in, in addition to playing a comic role and a, and a romantic lead in the story, he also gets to play like a, a totalitarian dictator. Yeah. So there's, a, and, and again, not that the politics are, not that the you know political aspect of the film is all that heavy, but uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's very, you know, loopish style, you know, old world, uh, old world communist country. Um, but I, I like the fact that he, you know, he also his his character Boris Pochenko has has a bona fide emotional journey. He he goes from being a, 
you know, a, a real dictator to sort of, you know, it's, you know, Fran really, you know, kind of puts a chink or two in his armor and he starts to see the value of, oh, I don't know, representative democracy by the end of the film. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's great you're talking about the chemistry. We, we were calling out how great the two of them were like that was the standout uh, for us watching it and i mean i had i'd grown up on the movie i i'd watched it a lot as a kid it'd been a long time since i'd seen it before we did the recap colin had, had never seen it and all jokes aside colin sort of you know not a big fan of timothy dalton as bond but had sort of enjoyed him in other roles and i think colin you were a bit skeptical about watching this film because basically ken what was we're very doing, skeptical <laughs> we're, we're basically we've recapped all the bond films so we thought we'll do a project where we would take one film from each of the six Bond actors filmography and kind of give a recap of it so with Timothy Dalton you know esteemed films we could have chosen you know sort of you mentioned a couple of them before but I straight away was like Beautician and the Beast like we have to do Beautician and the Beast and Colin pleasantly surprised at how much you actually enjoyed it right Colin yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I was expecting, okay, well, maybe it's going to be decent or whatever. But I mean, the movie held up quite well more than 20 years later, and especially for Timothy Dalton and Fran Drescher, who, like you said, you would never expect those two to work as well together as they did. Beautician and the Beast was written by a wonderful uh, writer named Todd Graff, who uh, is an actor himself. In fact, I think I mean, he's been in a lot of things, including he's in uh, James Cameron's film, The Abyss. He's mm -hmm. one of the uh, one of the ensemble un under the water in The Abyss. And um, but he his I think great love is musical theater. And I remembered when I first met Todd, he said he imagined Beautician and the Beast as, as sort of borrowing from both The King and I and The Sound of Music. So that's kind of that. Those are the the, the two, you know, obviously you know, iconic musicals that uh, inspired this. So, so obviously Beautician and the Beast is not a musical, although I personally think Fran's voice has a certain musicality to it. <laughs> well, Timothy could sing too, can't he, with that stage presence? He could, he could drop a tune. I, <laughs> I wonder that. If, <laughs> I wonder if Timothy can sing. I don't know. Well, Pierce um, Brosnan can't, but it didn't stop him in Mamma Mia, so it's not like there's, you know, history there with the Bond actors. <laughs> that's true. And um, but I but we shot the film uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, in part because we needed a palace. We needed to find somewhere that looked like, uh, you know, an, an Eastern Europe, an old, old world Eastern European palace currently occupied by a post-communist era dictator. So and we found it in the north end of the Czech Republic. And how does that searching work when you're looking for a, a palace? And because you obviously are making up a fictional country as well. So it's not like you're going in there and saying, hey, we're using your country. But do you have to kind of scout locations and then get the permission to say, hey, this is what we're doing. Don't worry. It's not going to be derogative to your country. This is a fake country, things like that. I don't think there was there wasn't much problem with it. And then again, in the mid to late 90s, this is, you know, in, in the post Velvet Revolution world of the Czech Republic, the post Václav Havel, you know, Czech Republic, a lot of people were coming there from Hollywood and elsewhere to make movies and TV shows. And, and the Czech Republic was open for business. So, I mean, they were super happy to have us. We didn't shoot the whole film there. Uh, most of the interiors were shot uh, on the Paramount backlot. So it's kind of classic, you know, classic Hollywood studio production, uh, the interiors of the castle, or the palace, I should say, were, you know, built on, on a stage. And 
one of the things that made the location scout challenging was it wasn't really clear whether we should actually use a palace or a castle. A castle is where, for instance, uh, a story like the uh, the Beauty and the Beast takes place. I'm sorry, I'm burying the lead. Sound of Music, <laughs> King and I, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, those were slight the resemblance there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. but, but the idea was, well, then should we go all the way and find an actual castle that Boris Pachenko lives in? But it seemed, uh, again, thinking about the King and I, uh, better to find a palace where you could, you know, uh, vaguely, reasonably believe that you know this this uh, character oversees a country from. One thing I just a really quick confession to make, Colin, before you ask your next question. You, you mentioned about it being filmed on the Paramount lot. I I did a tour of that many years ago, and I obviously you know each of the sound stages you have kind of had that little plaque where it shows what was filmed there. Mm. And I actually remember seeing the one with Beautician and the Beast, and I'm pretty sure I took a photo of it and sent it to to Colin and, <laughs> and our other co-host Noah, going like, "Look what was filmed on here!" Like, get excited. <laughs> so random weird fanboy moment when I did a tour of that place. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the, I mean, I, I, the Paramount lot is really fantastic and it, and it retains a lot of its original character. The producer of the beautician and the beast, one of the producers was Hawk Koch and Hawk Koch in the 1970s, uh, was a first, was a very prominent first AD. He told me once that he, he was the first AD, the first assistant director on the film Chinatown. Oh, and he told wow. me that when they were shooting chinatown on the paramount lot there was a moment where like three or four sound stages faced each other and and the films shooting on those stages were day of the locust chinatown and a little film called godfather part two they were all like literally wow. within like spitting distance of each other <laughs> and i thought wow talk just imagine like just sort of strolling past that in the yeah. early 70s wow and Fran Drescher was a producer on this film as well. And as you mentioned, Todd Graft uh, worked on the script with her. Uh, were you on board early enough to work on any of the creative development? Or the, by the time you came on, was this already set in stone? Fran Drescher is doing this. Uh, you know, this is the script. No changes made. Fran was definitely, uh, I mean, it's Fran's picture. She developed it. For, she and Todd developed it for her. Uh, when I came aboard, uh, Timothy had not been cast yet, nor had any of the other, you know, uh, characters been cast. So I was definitely involved in all the uh, the other casting. But the script was pretty much done when I came aboard. It, I mean, it was a strong draft, as I recall, uh, and we certainly fine tuned it. And and Fran's a great improviser too. So you know, she you know, even what, during shooting, she was was constantly you know looking for opportunities to improvise. I mean, one of the great things, one of the great challenges is when you have actors like uh, Timothy Dalton, who is a very classically trained actor, working opposite someone who can kind of shoot from the hip and, and improvise, which can sometimes create havoc. But again, their styles, they're very different styles meshed quite well. Um, but yeah, I came aboard, I, I don't remember how, I mean, I came aboard pretty late in the process. So I think as soon as I met with, Sherry Lansing, who was then running the Paramount's uh, company. Uh, I think I was off on a location scout almost immediately. I think I was on a plane to Prague pretty quickly after I got the job. Just bad part of the job, I can imagine. Oh, I just got to duck off to Prague. <laughs> you know, oh, God, I hate this part of the job. What a, what a bore. <laughs> Which 
It's, I mean, the, the locations in the film sort of, you know, mentioning, you know, and, and the visual aspect of it. I mean, one of my favourite moments is is the sort of the speech scene that Dalton's character has when he's, you know, speaking to the, the masses and he's got that massive poster behind him and it's sort of followed by Fran Drescher's character who comes out and sort of does that little arm thing. She's like, I've always wanted to, to do that. I mean, with a scene like that, was, was that basically as many people as we see in the shot? Was that a bit of creative, you know, uh, special effects to make that crowd look bigger? I mean, sort of how did that scene come about? That was definitely a classic crowd duplication visual effect. Now, this film was made in 96, and there were certainly, you know, uh, computer-generated visual effects by then, but not a ton. Hmm. So this was a pretty old-style kind of visual effects shot where we locked down the camera. We had a group of maybe 100 uh, extras in, you know, in Slovitsian wardrobe. And we would just sort of march them around this giant expanse without moving the camera so that, you know, the, the composite would look as if there were, you know, 20,000 people there. And uh, one of the I love that scene, by the way, that's probably my favorite scene in the film, partly because I love the uh, reveal. Uh, the camera does a wonderful kind of crane move that reveals that massive banner mm. with Timothy face on it over it, which you know, towering over him. And I, I definitely had in mind, you know, sort of classic, you know, Soviet. Uh, well, I was thinking, you know, well, how would Eisenstein shoot this scene? <laughs> you know, which Eisenstein would have shot it very differently. But I just love the idea of, of this kind of, you know, wonderful kind of Soviet constructivist era, you know, artwork hanging over Timothy Dalton when he gives his speech. Uh, maybe I'm when misremembering. You... I, I, <laughs> I hope that's what it looks no, like. No, that was exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're working with a fictional country in a movie, I mean, in a way you have free reign, you can make whatever rules you want, whatever type of political system, dialect being another thing. Uh, and in this case, I don't know how difficult it was or if it was just a simple decision, this is what we want them to sound like because you're dealing with actors who are from England and then the kids are American and Canadian. You know, How much uh, work actually went into developing a dialect for this fictional country? As I recall, and I and I will admit, I can't be sure. I'm almost, but I'm almost sure we had a dialect specialist to help the younger actors. I mean, I think that again, many of the uh, many of the uh, British-based actors, many of the London-based actors I, uh, in the film knew how to could do any any kind of dialect. But for the young for the young actors playing Boris's children, I think we had someone to give them some guidance. And in terms of, you know, you're mentioning about Fran had the ability to kind of, you know, ad-lib a bit, Timothy Dalton and that. As a director, when you sort of, you know, you're directing these people, of course, and they're sort of used to doing that. I mean, how, how can, when they're so esteemed in that level, I mean, what do you do to try and bring things out of them for how you're wanting a scene? Because you've got these people who are, you know, very talented actors, but of course you're a very talented director. So you talk about chemistry between the actors. Is that a case of as a director, you need to sort of work on a level of chemistry. So in a scene you're directing them, you can kind of bring out what your vision is of that scene. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, you know, one of the things that's always tricky with, um, you know, several actors in a scene is that some of them kind of get up to speed very quickly where others take a while. So, you know, one actor may, Come, come right out of the gate and take one is really wonderful. And uh, their scene partner may take six takes to get up to speed and, and really find the scene. So you have to, you know, as a director, be able to, you have to be sensitive to both. The actor who kind of hits their stride, hits his or her stride on take one, 
you have to make sure that they don't get bored by take six when their scene partner is now really cooking. So uh, I, I don't recall that there was an issue with Fran and Timothy. I think they were both on and, and creative in every, you know, from take to take. The one thing I do as a director, though, is I rarely, try, I mean, I do have a vision for a scene. I do, you know, I, I have an idea of how I want the scene to play, but I, but A, I, it's not set in stone. And, and B, I, I'd rather create an atmosphere that lets the actors sort of surprise me with ideas that I would have never thought of. And so there's never a moment where I say, okay, that's it. That's the keeper. We're done. We got it. In fact, all I really do is try and keep feeding them suggestions that, that kind of keep them in an exploratory mode. And uh, so, I mean, that, I, I don't think it's that unique, but I know a lot of directors who simply like are aiming for one thing, one reading, one line reading, and when they get it, okay, move on. So I, I, I don't operate that way. That, that's funny because that was the very next question I was going to ask you is about how much improv you use. Cause you I mean, you spent probably the majority of your career directing comedy, you know, some obviously a lot more outlandish than others. And how much do you, do you always try to incorporate, you know, let's get one take where improvise, you know, come up with this or, or give a different direction so that you have those options. Is that something you always try to work in? I don't not No, I don't actually, believe it or not. Uh, I don't actually do a lot of improv in my scenes. I mean, I, I will sometimes say, to the actors, you know, if, if you want to use your own words to kind of make this feel more comfortable, go ahead. But even on a show like The Office, if, you know, I helped launch the American version of The Office, and, and most people assume it was improvised, but it was actually a very tightly scripted series. Um, there are so obviously there are some uh, directors like Christopher Guest who really excel in, in sort of, you know, creating an, an environment where actors can kind of make up the text as they go but I'm, I'm not i mean i and i i'm in awe of them but i mostly um you know i, I i'm also in awe of a good script so i <laughs> mostly i stick to the script the, the famous saying of course he's never worked with children and animals when it comes to to movies you had children in beautician and the beast and you had uh, an animal in dunson checks in your movie before beautician and the beast did you just after that go screw this i've done both i'm moving on from this <laughs> yeah i just <laughs> It's just, I just wanted to torture myself. No, no, I know I, I've, I've worked with young people before. I've actually uh, directed a few, you know, animals in addition to the orangutan, <laughs> uh, the, the title character of Dunstan. Um, I, and, and of course, uh, my first feature film, I directed, they're not real animals, but I directed the Muppets. So my, my, my yeah. feature debut, <laughs> Sesame Street, presents Follow That Bird. Colin's I, excited I, to talk about that. Trust me, he would shut <laughs> up about Follow That Bird. My, man, my children, it gives my children a reason to listen to my podcast one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I have to say um, I had such a great experience working with Jim Henson, Frank Oz, who created the characters uh, Super Grover, or Grover and Super Grover, I guess, Cookie Monster. <laughs> Bert of Bert and Ernie, uh, and of course the great Carol Spinney, who uh, created Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, and and you may not know that the same puppeteer <laughs> did both Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. And I remember actually when I first met Carol, he warned me. He said, you know, if I'm in the bird suit for too too long, uh, I may start to sound like Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> it's a perfect balance. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, there's so many directors who will, uh, let's say, start in TV and then move on to movies or do the opposite. They'll start in movies and then eventually transition to TV. Uh, you you seem to be all over the place. I mean, you'll do movie, then you'll go back and do TV and then you come back to another movie. I mean, do you have a preference one or the other or do you do both just because you like that variety and, you know, TV, maybe it's an opportunity to work a lot quicker? You know, when I started as a director and I was hardly alone, I mean, I, I did, I well, like a lot of my fellow would-be directors. I looked down on television. I, you know, it, it, this was in the early 1980s, and I think the general feeling was, if you're a uh, television director, like, good luck getting a feature off the ground. And if you're a feature director, why the heck would you want to work in television? And I actually had that bias for a number of years, and I can tell you exactly when it changed. And that was in the early 90s, uh, prior to shooting Beautician, uh, prior to shooting Dunstan, actually. In the early 90s, I was sent a half hour television script and I really, I, I almost didn't want to open the envelope. I thought, oh, here it is, the slippery slope, a half hour comedy, you know, nobody will take me seriously as a feature director again. Well, I did open the envelope and it was the pilot episode of the Larry Sanders show. Wow. Yeah. And when I read it, I thought, oh, this is like, this is different. This is different than anything on television and actually I remember thinking wow this is actually different than any comedy playing in a theater right now this felt like it was coming from a whole you know the writer the writers of that pilot Dennis Klein and Gary Shandling felt like they were really changing the game mm -hmm. and so I jumped aboard and and what I have found uh, since that time this is in the you know again the early 90s is that a, a lot of the most ambitious uh, comedy work is is done in, in series you know that, that I mean I mean just think about shows like The Office or even like a show like Bernie Mac but even more you know more recent shows like Fleabag or Atlanta shows that really uh, tonally mix things up I mean like mm -hmm. is, is Atlanta a comedy I don't even know but I mean uh, I, I think I mean I'm happy to say that I think that you can draw a, you can trace a line from, you know, the tonally ambitious comedies of the streaming era, you know, back to something like Larry Sanders. Mm -hmm. So I, so, so the answer to the question is I, I feel fortunate that I've been able to go back and forth between feature films and series. And, and, and when it comes to series, I feel particularly fortunate that I've been able to help launch several, you know, interesting offbeat series. Which is also interesting too on that notion of, you know, the TV movie worlds and that a uh, big thing that we talked about during our recap of Beautician and the Beast was this was also that period where a lot of sitcom stars were trying to break out into movies. Obviously, you know, the Friends cast had varying degrees of success and this was, of course, I guess, Fran's first real starring role mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, was there, did Fran kind of feel like this was her attempt to break out into to movies? Was that kind of thing? Or was it just like a passion project that she kind of believed in and that wasn't anything to do with it crossing over into movies from TV? Because she'd obviously, as you said, done films before, but this was her first starring role in a movie. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for Fran. I mean, obviously, uh, this was a this was a big move for her to to be the you know the the star, the lead of a feature film of a Hollywood studio film, um, and I feel like the uh, you know I think that again, Fran, I think does have the ability to sort of operate in both in on the big and small screen, and you know I, I again I don't know what um, her 
what I, to be honest, I don't really know what how 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 the project originated. I but I but the one thing I do know, it was absolutely a passion project. I mean, it was definitely you know it was probably Todd and Fran who cooked up the idea together. So I know that it it what you know one of the reasons I feel that it holds up is I you know when people are have, have do a passion project, it's there on the screen. You can feel it. So. Even if it's like a, even if it's kind of a, you know, loopy comedy, if, <laughs> if the people who made it were doing it out of love, you can feel it. Kill Phil, Colin. Say kill Phil. It's no, it, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a vanity project. That's Ben student film, which we labeled as a vanity project, not a passion project. Big There's difference. a reason why I, I, I'm not an esteemed Hollywood director. <laughs> and, um, it's pretty bad. So, yeah. With um, with the movie, I think my favorite uh, scene, or at least the one that made me laugh the hardest, uh, was the scene where Timothy Dalton is impersonating Fran Drescher. Now, I have to imagine because she worked on development of this movie that she was okay with that. I mean, she had it written in the script. You know, it, it was part of her film. Uh, did did Timothy Dalton have fun doing that? Was it something that you had to coach him on? No, no, I want you to give it a little... <laughs> Everybody's, I guarantee everybody will probably have a Fran Drescher impression. Oh, I think that, I mean, I think... To be honest, the only way to do a scene like that is to basically ask ask Fran to step in and guest direct Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, you, know, you mentioned children and animals, but now I'm remembering one of my favorite scenes in Beautician does feature an animal, the chicken. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. yes, oh, of course. Fran, Fran having to kill that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> She's like turning it back on it, basically with the machete. She was, she did a great job holding that butcher knife and that chicken pacing back and forth in front of her. It is it's actually, I mean, we talk a lot on uh, both Double Oz Seven and the Oz Network when we're watching certain films that sometimes it just looks like people are having fun. We we did a recap on the Oz Network of Twister many years ago, and you know, no matter what you say about the script, legitimately the cast in that film look like they have just the blast doing. It. They're all getting along. Yeah. The chemistry is amazing, and there's plenty of other films and TV shows. Was this one of the ones, Ken, that you can remember working on where it just because it looks like people are having fun in this movie that they would just enjoy their time working on this film. Oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule because there are plenty of films that are wonderful that where, where the cast you know, and crew hated each other. <laughs> but, but in this case, I, I you know, I, I remember nothing. I mean, I have all, all fond memories of, you know, everyone working together. And it was just, a again, it, it, every day was, for me, just a chance to sort of let these two wonderful actors uh, uh, kind of play and, and, and you know, and discover each other a little bit i mean that again that's one of the tricky things they didn't know each other before this it's not like fran and timothy dalton hang out together or hung out together oh, so you ruined that illusion damn it <laughs> <laughs> but the uh no but but in a, in a way what i like is you know they use you know they use the scenes to get to know each other and you feel that uh, now you mentioned uh, having worked on the office or directed the pilot of the office, which uh, you know must have uh, been at least a little bit of pressure because it, it wasn't like this is just an adaptation of, you know, some show from overseas. I mean, the office, the UK version, had won I think the Emmy or the Golden Globe already, so this was widely known. Uh, and then you come in and you're directing the American version. Uh, with uh, that series, you know, had you seen the British version or were you trying certain things to steer away from to make give it its own identity? Because I mean, the concept itself of just documentary crew filming on the surface seems like it's exactly the same. But yet the show from the beginning had such a different feel. Well, I'd certainly uh, seen the British show. I'd studied it quite a bit. Uh, I mean, Greg Daniels, who uh, 
it was the showrunner of the American version, the, wrote a pilot script that was very close to the original British pilot. And uh, I mean, to be honest, the whole thing was daunting. And a lot of my colleagues said, wow, you're going to get killed because this British show is like, it's beloved. People love and it. And for good reason. It's amazing. It's an amazing show. And, and I was very nervous about it because also the, you know, the, the British show is very uh, edgy. Uh, it, it's it, the, the main character, Ricky Gervais's character is singularly unlikable. And I thought, how, how is this going to translate to a broadcast network show? Um, so, so we, the answer to the question is we were both very respectful and faithful to the original series while at the same time constantly trying to figure out how, uh, how to come up with a, a translation that would, that would kind of honor the values of the original show but make sense for an American audience. Now, of course, the key is Steve Carell. And, and I, I would say that Steve's uh, you know, audition for the show, it was very clear to me that you know when he, that he he was creating a a character in, in in Michael Scott who could be you know at times patently offensive and you still cut him slack and rooted for him and I remember when I worked with Steve during the audition process Steve was not a household name at that point he was not a big star he had been known for some very prominent roles in films like Anchorman. Uh, but he wasn't a well-known actor or at least as well known as he is now and i remember steve told me that when we were doing the audition that he watched about 30 seconds of the uh, of ricky gervais's performance in the original and turned off the tv because he was worried that if he watched any more of it he would just sort of come in and do a impersonation of ricky gervais so he said i've never seen the original show uh, when, when we started the american one and and I think he made the right choice because he really, he just said that he, I remember Steve said, I'm just going to channel all the boobs I've worked for over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the biggest difference between them, you know, with the British version, which I'm a massive fan of the British version, you laugh because you're uncomfortable. Whereas mm -hmm. with the American version, you're laughing because like, you know, I've experienced something like that. I, I see the humor in it as opposed to, I feel uncomfortable. So therefore I'm going to laugh. <laughs> I would say that, you know, one one way to describe the difference between the American and British versions of the show is that Michael Scott is a boob <laughs> and Ricky's character is a jerk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> jerk versus boob. Yeah, that's, that's how we work on this show as well. One of us is a jerk, the other's a boob. You can, <laughs> you can work that out, Ken. Uh, now, just look at your filmography. I didn't know. Maybe this isn't what I'm thinking it is. Uh, but it says that you directed the the pilot for About a Boy. Now, this is is this the one based on the TV show? Because there was one that came years later. But I didn't even realize that this was a thing. That another example of adapting something that was incredibly popular, incredibly famous. Can you tell us anything about the, the original About a Boy that never got picked up? Um, it was the pilot for About a Boy. This is this was not the one that. Uh, made it to the airwaves the pilot i directed the the pilot of about a boy starring patrick dempsey wow in fact, it was patrick dempsey not long before he joined the cast of gray's anatomy and became a very popular television actor so we we uh, matthew carlson wrote the script it was you know adapted from the movie based on nick hornby's novel uh such a fantastic movie Great. and uh, and we did a terrific pilot the only thing i'll say is you know you can never predict the outcome of these things. You can never tell exactly why a network will or won't put on a show. But this was for the Fox network. 
And I, I feel that, that the Fox network may have not been the, you know, the exact right place for a show like about a boy, which, you know, even though it was, it was a very funny show, it was a slightly gentler, more character oriented, you know, story than a lot of the Fox comedies. Two other shows that you worked on um, that were quite big at the time as well, Malcolm in the Middle, of course, and then sort of the Bernie Mac show. Um, we're just about to start on the Oz Network our coverage of Breaking Bad. And in that pilot episode, my co-host Nick and I were talking about sort of, uh, you know, Brian Cranston. And I, I, for a long time, didn't want to watch Breaking Bad because I couldn't fathom Brian Cranston in a serious role because I used to love Malcolm in the Middle and watching him in that show. And I was like, wow, I don't get it. But... I mean, when you're directing shows like that, does it then surprise you that you can see Brian's work in comedy and how good he is, that when you see a show like Breaking Bad, does it surprise you seeing that somebody like that can transition so seamlessly into a show like Breaking Bad and just show that just how talented of an actor he actually is? It, it didn't surprise me only because with Malcolm in the Middle, first of all, Malcolm in the Middle is a very you know, high octane, high style, you know, kind of in your face comedy. And yet it's, it has a lot of emotional truth. I mean, the emotional content of the storylines is very relatable and very real. And I think that with actors like Jane Kaczmarek and Brian Cranston, not, I mean, setting aside the younger actors for a second, but their commitment to those roles is so complete and they're not playing jokes. They're not doing, I mean, in a funny way, I don't even think of Brian sometimes as doing comedy. Obviously he's doing comedy, but but it's more that he's just sort of so invested in this character in Hal, the father, Hal. You know, you don't really, you never know the last name of that family, by the way, yeah. nor where they live, nor what Brian Cranston's character does for a living. <laughs> so, Well, have, you know, some people have theories, right, that they combine that in Breaking <laughs> Bad, that, you know, deep down he's actually doing meth still. <laughs> But I, but I feel like he, there's a, you know, again, a, a certain connection to, to that character that Brian made that uh, is so, you know, so real, so honest that it would, didn't surprise me at all that he could make an equally strong connection to a dramatic character in a dramatic role. So. And so many of the TV series you've worked on, we mentioned already, like The Office, uh, the Gary Shandling show and um, uh, Malcolm in the Middle as well. Uh, you really stuck around for a long time and you uh, kind of became a staple of your style with those shows. One show that, uh, you know, I had to do a double take that you did only a single episode of. Uh, I'm guessing the connection to The Office might have been the reason you did it was Parks and Recreation. Uh, kind of a two part question. Uh, one, is there a reason why you only did the single episode of Parks and Recreation? And also the episode you did, Galentine's Day maybe what the most iconic episode the show ever had to this day, people celebrate this as a real holiday. I mean, did you ever expect that this little episode, this one shot you did for parks and recreation would develop into a real holiday years later? I, I am so, so excited that, that people celebrate Galentine's day. I, <laughs> often get back, I, I have, I have nieces who send me Galentine's day notices. <laughs> no, I, I, I only directed one episode. Um, I would have loved to have done more. I was just working on other, other things and, um, it's obviously it's a wonderful show, but I feel very fortunate that, um, they asked me to do that particular episode. I don't think anyone predicted that it would have, it, it would become such an iconic episode, but it, it, it's, it's a great one. Got to ask, given that uh, part of this, of course, is airing on our uh, James Bond show, 007. If you're listening on the Oz Network, download 007. It's a great show. The hosts are fantastic. Um, you know, obviously a lot more sort of probably on the comedic side of things, Ken, but uh, 
You know, how would you feel if somebody knocked on the door and was like, hey, Mr. Quappas, uh, got a James Bond script for you, Bond 26. Would you be interested in uh, switching over and giving a bit of a style change and uh, directing a Bond movie? Would that be something of interest for you? Well, I mean, yes, absolutely. Because I feel like a lot of these, you know, the skills that I've developed directing comedic material apps that totally applies to a, something like a James Bond story. And obviously uh, you guys have talked about the, the Bond series much more than I ever have, but you know, I think a lot of people distinguish between James Bond films that are f- more humorous than not. Obviously the, 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 you know, the, the Timothy Dalton films are much heavier and weightier than, you know, some of the other films, but uh, you know, I personally think George Lazenby is hilarious as Bond. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the correct answer. That is a hundred percent right. Absolutely. You win at Double O Seven Bingo. Good job, Ken. <laughs> What's your thoughts on Die Another Day? Uh, do you do you remember that? One? <laughs> That's a funny one. <laughs> There's a movie that you did, not associated with comedy at all. That uh, when I was explaining to my wife who we're interviewing today, I mentioned uh, because I'm sure everybody's wife uh, of our age group probably has seen this. That's the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Uh, which she saw that, and I think her and my sister-in-law saw that in the this, the sequel in the theater as well. Me and my brother were like, uh, I have no idea what this is. She showed it to me, and as soon as we finished the first movie, she said, do you want to watch the second now? I'm like, where are they getting the mileage on this single pair of pants? But now I see that you're, you're attached to do, I'm guessing this is the third sister of the Traveling Pants. Is that something you're working on right now? I am indeed developing uh, the third and probably final uh, entry in the Sisterhood uh, series. It, it, the, the, the goal, and I can't say too much more about it, the goal is to, uh, because the four actors are going to, you know, America Ferrara, Amber Tamblin, Alexis Bledel, and Blake Lively will return to play their characters, but those actors are, you know, now well into their 30s. So the goal is to actually write a script that's only partly based on the book series, but catches up with these characters in their 30s. So I'm, I'm super excited about it. And I'm really, I'm, I, again, I, I, I'm so proud of that film. And I remember when I first read the screenplay and my, my agent called me and said, oh my gosh, they're, they're interested in you reading this script. I go, what's it about? And, and he said, well, it's about four girls who share a pair of pants. And I said, what, really? <laughs> they're like, okay, I thought this is, this is what my career has come to, four girls. <laughs> and... Um, so I guess this is another great story about almost not wanting to read something. But then I read it, and what I was uh, I was so delighted by the emotional content of each of those four teenage girls' stories. I mean, it was you know there's some heavy duty stuff in that story, balanced obviously by this kind of whimsical grace note of this you know kind of magical pair of pants. So. I, I, I'm really super proud. I'm glad your wife likes that. <laughs> I know I'll be there opening day when the third one comes out. Cause as soon as we got married, she had this list of these are the movies that I'm going to show you. And I think sister of the traveling Pants is on. It took maybe a year or two before I got around to it. But I mean, like you said, that's not something that, that the synopsis is going to sell you on the movie. You, you kind of have to, <laughs> see it to get it right. <laughs> well, it, here's the important thing is that the four actors were new to each other when we made the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. They'd never worked together. They, I don't think they, any of them had met each other before, and they actually have become best friends. They are actual best friends, and and wow. uh, so I think that one of the things I'm excited about, uh, you know, if this comes to pass, we'll see. But if if we make another film, 
I, I love the idea of those four actors bringing all this life experience they've had now as friends to the screen. So, you know, they, we were talking earlier about, can you feel that when people have a really you know good connection or having a great time? Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of making a film that really kind of, in a way, pays tribute to their off-camera real-life friendship. I'm just looking forward to the spin-off, The Brotherhood of the Travelling Pants. That's a short movie. Men don't <laughs> share pants. They'd be like, mate, fucking no, nah, I'm not sure. Cool, great, movie over, done. That's a very quick, like, maybe a webisode or, or, or something like that. Ken, your book, uh, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the interview, but what I really want to do is direct. It's been out now for, for a couple of months. What was the experience like writing a book, sort of getting you know your emotions onto a page, sharing these stories? You know, It must have been an interesting experience. You know, for a number of years, I've been uh, mentoring young directors, and uh, I find that, you know, when I'm working with up-and-coming directors, that, you know, obviously there's a lot of discussion about craft, you know, how to stage a scene, where to put the camera, how to pre-visualize a scene. But uh, a lot of times, you know, what young directors ask me about has nothing to do with directing a craft, the directorial craft, but has to do with how to comport yourself as a director. How do you... Uh, create an atmosphere on the set where people get along or people feel respected or safe. How do you, you know, pick yourself up off the ground after a terrible job interview? Or how do you deal with a blistering bad review? Uh, so I thought, wow, that's something I've never read in a book. <laughs> so that actually, that's what prompted me to write it was, was, you know, as much as I wanted to, you know, write about films I've loved, images that have affected me, uh, I wanted to obviously talk about the things I've directed, but I love the idea of just kind of exploring things that you don't find in most directors' autobiographies or in directors' handbook. And that is how do how do you how do you carry yourself as a director? How do you develop the you know resilience and the tenacity to you know survive in this business? So that's really what started me on this you know writing journey. So. Are there plans for a second book? You have any other ideas in your head of nobody's really written about this, or is this like a one-shot deal for you? I well, I have a I, you know what I I have a lot of ideas now, and, and the reason I I don't want to mention any one idea, but I found the process of writing the book incredibly satisfying, partly because I didn't have to answer to anybody. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> There was no studio. There were no producers. There was no network. It was just me. No Fran, no Timothy. <laughs> it was just me and, me and a piece of paper. So uh, it may, it has, it has inspired me to look for a, another idea to, to write. Great. Great. We'll keep an eye on that. And people want to check out the book, of course. Uh, but what I really want uh, to do is direct.com. That's a very long sentence, but you can do that. And we'll put a link up on our pages. Kent, but before we let you go, Two quick fire questions for you on different ends of the spectrum here. First of all, give us your best memory of the Beautician and the Beast, whether you're behind the scenes or anything along those lines. And secondly, Beautician and the Beast 2. Can it happen? <laughs> oh, hey, yeah, would, we joked. We be, said it could be a thing. <laughs> no, I would be first in line. I would be first in line to see that film if I didn't direct it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this is a very, um, this may be an unexpected answer to your first question. The, the score for The Beautician and the Beast was composed by a wonderful uh, musician, a wonderful composer named Cliff Eidelman, who I've worked with on several occasions. And we recorded the score in London, uh, not with the London Symphony Orchestra, but with a, with a 
an equally good, you know, very strong orchestra in London. And one of my favorite memories was actually arriving uh, at the arriving at the recording studio in London, where like you know, 60, 70 piece orchestra started playing this incredibly, you know, lush music to accompany Timothy Dalton and Fran Drescher waltzing at the climactic ball scene. And I just was so swept away watching the image, but 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 here, like literally sitting in a room with you know like some of the you know top musicians in London, and um, I will never forget that. And I, but I, but I want to add one quick thing though. Please do. So there's uh, one other memory from that recording session was that we needed to record the Communist Internationale, which is sung during a sequence when uh, Timothy Dalton gives Fran a tour of a factory mm-hmm. and you hear on the soundtrack the communist mm-hmm. international well uh our production manager rounded up as many russian nationals uh, that he could find in london and we've herded them all into this studio and and tried to record the communist international and they were terrible there was like <laughs> like you know they're like they were, it was the sorriest group of people singing you've ever heard and finally well i didn't know what to do and we had to get a recording of it uh, somebody said, well, the, what we need to do is bring in some vodka. <laughs> and so literally we, we sent PAs out to like bring in bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of vodka <laughs> with all these glasses. And we basically plied these, you know, these poor people with, you know, well, they weren't, they weren't complaining, obviously, but we got <laughs> washed. And we all, you know, I just remember the, you know, the guy on the talkback mic in this in the recording booth saying, "Whatever you do, do not throw your glasses against the wall." <laughs> and finally, after you know, after they had consumed a healthy amount of vodka, we got a really, really spirited take. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> no, no, no Russian stereotypes living up to there at all. Like, just <laughs> get a vodka, they'll work fine. Um, wow, that that is a, a, that is a very important memory. That's Colin. You and I should try that for now and when we're recording. <laughs> like, we're putting shit episodes out. Get some vodka into us. We'll, we'll probably be fine. <laughs> Ken, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to to learn about this. We really appreciate your time going over a film, as we said at the beginning, that you probably don't often talk about that much. I'm also picturing that in your house that I can see you've got fantastic bookshelf all that sort of stuff I'm really hoping that at some point in your house you've got a giant Timothy Dalton statue or that massive poster that he had like I, <laughs> yeah. I really, or, or really I mean maybe maybe Tim has him in his house like he just walks in there we go I was a dictator once but uh, I will tell you that among my prized possessions is a uh, one sheet from the beautician and the beast from Turkey uh-huh. oh wow and it's and it's actually a really fascinating. I, I wish I had it. I could show it to you, but it's rolled up somewhere. But it's a it's a very abstract image. It's just like Fran's lips and Timothy's mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and 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 you know, and, and it's in Turkish. And it's like this odd, you know, odd poster. And and it, it looks like it's, you know, it looks like a poster for some odd offbeat art film or something <laughs> so wow we've discovered a lot on double oz seven that, that, that european posters are interesting we've you know plenty of bond films will have a a poster for a character that like is in the movie for two seconds but they're from their country so they're going to advertise it that way so for sure if you if you ever find that shoot us our way we'd, we'd love to see it but kent absolute pleasure people go out and buy the book read everything about that and uh, we look forward to the book sequel and the beautician and the beast 2 coming to theaters <laughs> 2025 Thank you very much. Let me say that again. Thank you very much. Actually, let me say something else. Maybe it should be a series. 
Yes. We talked about that. We said this would really work as a TV series now. Not, not sure if Fran wants to get back in TV. I don't know what, t- I mean, Timothy's busy voicing Mr. Pricklepants, but I'm sure he can spare some time to, to get into it. Why not? I think it's a good streaming show. And a great chat with Ken, two-time Emmy-nominated director, Colin. Um, I'd, have you ever been nominated for anything before? Can I, can I introduce you as like once nominated for employee of the month at that place you work at? You know what? I uh, I was nominated for and finished third in the Oslet of the Year uh, award. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I claim to fame. I forgot about that. <laughs> Only Sadly, once? I lost Did you miss it. out in the I- second year? Uh, I don't. I don't remember if it was. Well, I, I don't even know if the first year. Uh, oh, I'm finding how involved I was. Uh, this yeah, might, but yeah, jeez. Yeah, I, I still curse both Noah and Kate for beating me that year. <laughs> did uh, Noah well, win? Did Noah win? I thought Kate would have won because she was the only girl. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Lancey won one year and then Kate won the next. Didn't? Isn't that? How oh it? yeah, that's right. Lancey did win once. So yeah. I, I lost. I lost to Lancey too. T- okay. One time I- nominee. <laughs> I, I actually completely forgot about that, and I've somehow <laughs> dug this up. Let's see here. This, I, apologies to to Ken Quapper's fans who are thinking we've got some you know great little tidbit to share at the end here. We're just we're I'm so I want to do this on it. We could edit this out, but like no, this is live reactions right now. I for, I forget about the Oscars. They were fun when we do our tenth anniversary. I know we just did our one thousandth episode, but of course we do our tenth anniversary one at one point this year. I feel like we need to bring up the uh, oh here we go Oslet of the Year. Uh, 2014, the nominees were Ethan, Jared, as in Jared Elliott, Lancey, Noah, and Nick. Wow, you didn't even get the final five in the first year, Colin. Um, and 2015, was that the year that you were nominated? Um, that was, I think. Who were you up against that year? I'm so intrigued right now. Um, I know Kate and Noah beat me. That's all I remember. Oh, gee, you haven't held on to that at all, have you? Uh, <laughs> Kate and Noah beats me. Uh, Kate, Noah, Rossi was nominated, Kristen <laughs> and Colin. Look at that. Here we go. I've got the results here, Colin, actually. Did I ever, did I ever disclose how much of the vote you got? Um, uh, no, I think only the position. So Kate got first with 28.09% of the vote, 807 votes for Kate. Do we have that many people vote? Jesus. <laughs> Noah second with 706 votes, 24.5%. You got 18.8% of the vote at 540 votes you got. Yes, where's my 18% at? <laughs> which, which was 121 more votes than Kristen got. And 139 votes more than Rossi in last. So wow. um, bring that up with Rossi every single time you talk to him. Now. <laughs> Just, um, wow. Can I, I get a plaque? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm overdue for a third place plaque or, or trophy or something. <laughs> yeah. Did Noah actually win the first year? I don't. Did he really? Why do I not believe this? How are we extending this interview to nothing to do with what we just talked about? I can like, this is one of those things that people remind me of. That's like, oh, I remember the Oz. Cause, oh yeah, I remember them. Um, yeah, no, Noah didn't win. Noah got second in both years. Lancey won. Noah's never year. won. How? Look at the amount. You think we got enough votes in the third, the second year? Lancey, twenty six point three percent of the vote, two thousand one hundred and twenty two votes. <laughs> God, it was good when we had listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and and somehow Jared and Nick tied for fourth 
with with 1,252 votes each. Wow. Like, wow. very tight race there. Noah second. <laughs> uh, every time I introduce Noah now, he's a perennial runner-up of Oz Red of the Year. <laughs> only the Susan Lucci of the Oz Network. <laughs> the only thing stopping him from winning is the fact that he doesn't have a vagina. So, um <laughs> Well done, Noah. Good job. Uh, well, I'm, I'm proud of you, Colin. Third place in Oslo of the Year 2015. There you go. Thank you. Ken, I worked hard for it. Ken would win the award, the Oscar, for Best Interview with a Director uh, over Guy Norman B, oh. who we've had on this show twice. So, <laughs> Hands down, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Guy. Uh, no offence, but, uh, you know, I love Third Watch, but I, I don't see you directing Timothy Dalton and Fran Drescher in a movie. So, <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Uh, seriously, big thanks to Ken for his time and to his management team for arranging that chat. A lot of fun. And uh, over on 007, we did a recap of Beautician and the Beast. So by all means, go and listen to that. It was a lot of fun to do that. We, are, of course, uh, just celebrated our 1,000th episode. We've got lots of interviews that we've actually banked before the 1,000th that we're now going to play. 24 actors, Breaking Bad actors, you name it, we've got it. Stay tuned for those. Uh, of course, our full interview with Aaron Schwartz from the Mighty Ducks as well. Uh, a couple of ones that we did tease on our 1,000th episode. You'll be able to hear them very, very shortly. And 24, Breaking Bad, coming your way very soon, as is the return of Lost. Our movie recaps are still happening. Colin's going to recap shit too, I think. Like, what are you going to recap, Colin? Just, just create something on the spot right now. You know what? It's actually really sad that uh, 24 and Alias share so many things because I would love to do Alias start to finish. And I'm trying so hard to get Jamie to watch him. If Jamie can watch this, maybe I can't talk her into covering the whole series. Maybe I could talk her into doing one episode on it, just anything. But she's got to watch it first. Well, I, I would say put this out there right now. Like if we got a listener who's, you know, slightly talented in podcasting, like maybe they can <laughs> join you. Like, I mean, in yes. all seriousness, I wanted to find any excuse to do Third Watch thinking I would have to do it by myself, but I was lucky enough to find Brandy and Darvell and we managed to do the whole thing so right now if anybody's listening and would be willing to recap all of Alias then Colin's your man email I'm Colin Hilding from Winnipeg at hotmail.com <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't at your email address we never share contact details <laughs> with each other we're very private outside of uh, doing these podcasts so um, yeah or just send your request to Colin at Winnipeg Street Winnipeg Canada <laughs> www.peg or- or just message the Oz Network just to simplify things. Could do that as well. Uh, yes. Um, also, I believe our Patreon's up now. We recorded this before our 1,000 people. We launched that there. I don't know what we've done with it. So we're very professional on the show. So if we have a Patreon, you hear it in either side of this interview, sign up and you can get... Give us your money. Give us your money. You can go back and listen to the Oscar award ceremony. You get exclusive access <laughs> to our Survivor Oz episodes when we used to get these people on and do... I'm, I need to go listen to this now. I, Who do doesn't want to hear me and Noah lose? Come on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Maybe we need to have like a, an Oslet of the Year award once again because we don't have any... Food. <laughs> no, well, let's be honest. Mallory and Jamie would win now. So Yeah, um, they're going to win. And Brandy. So, you know... That, yeah, not, not a chance still, Colin. Not a chance. Uh, thanks again to Ken. Thanks, everyone, for listening. My name is Ben, and I was never nominated for Roslet of the Year. 
And my name is Colin, and I'm the man who pleases 18% of our audience. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as finding out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at theoznetwork.net. Thanks again for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made.